the last few months, and I'm pretty excited to have him share all that he's been processing and the things that the Lord's been showing him with all of us. I think we'll be greatly enriched by what the Lord uses him for in our lives. I'm stalling until I can make this work. Got it. Uh, today, we wrap up John chapter 1. Um, there's a couple, not, I wouldn't say confusing, but there's a couple things here in John chapter 21 that um, I think there's been some majoring on the minors. And I've heard some sermons around this passage a couple different times and trying to focus on Peter and the denial and some playing with Greek. And, and I think that's all valid, but I think we're... I think we might be in the weeds over what's really happening right in front of us. And so I want to try to get out the weed eater and knock, I don't know. I'm bad at analogies. We'll just knock the weeds down and we'll get to the heartbeat of Jesus' command for us to follow him. To follow him wherever he's going to lead us. That's one of the heartbeats of the Gospel of John is to follow Christ. And so that's where we're going to land. So let's pray. We'll jump in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for some time together with my family, with my friends, um, and with you. As we open up your word, I pray you'll help us to see how we are restored by your presence, by your sacrifice, and how the Spirit will guide us so that we can follow you wherever you would lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, It's a pretty long section, all of chapter 21, so I'm going to read it to us, and then we will break it down. Verse 1. So remember, he had revealed himself in the upper room in verses 24 to 29 again. Well, actually, 19 to 29. Um, And then, so this is going to be an additional appearance. Disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon, Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, so that for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said, Son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. 
Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another one will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, following them, the one who had been reclining at table close to him, and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is it to you? Follow me. So saying, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers, This disciple is not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if this is my will, that he will remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So we have three things happening. In exchange with the disciples, over a fishing expedition, we have Jesus and Peter having this very... Um, I think there's some tongue-in-cheek going on here and some ribbing around the campfire, but there's also uh, a very clear message to Peter that he has been forgiven. He needs to not be so hard on himself for rejecting Jesus before the rooster crowed. But I've I've heard that section of Scripture taught a couple different ways, where there's a play on the word of agape and phileo and the different versions of Greek words on what love means. And I I don't want to discredit that teaching, but I think that that kind of misses the overarching point of what's happening here. Because when you look at Greek, those those two ways of saying love are very they're very easily interchanged just in casual language, and we see those those two words of love used throughout the Gospel of John um, interchangeably in Greek, and it's not. I think sometimes we're trying to read something real like someone reads their Greek lexicon and they think it's look it's too different so there must be we're trying to make a more complex equation happen out of that passage and what's really going on and then we see this very confusing thing at the end of john 21 where there was clearly some rumors floating around as john is writing the gospel he's never going to die and so john is helping to retell an event that happened between jesus and peter and john in the vicinity saying that, because there are still people today that would say that John the Apostle is still walking the earth, that he was never allowed to die um, because of this one little passage here. Um, And no. But there are people trying to say that. There's even been a couple movies that have been made about this, um, or it's mentioned. And so I think John, as the God-inspired, Holy Spirit-filled author of the Gospel of John, is also trying to smash some rumors in his the end of his life when he's writing the gospel or in that space of his life he's trying to smash some of these rumors so that's what we're doing today the sea of galilee and the sightings that jesus there's three sightings that we know of um, up to this point we have the sightings in jerusalem Um, the two dots there in jerusalem are his two times in the upper room um, John records it as this is the third time he's appeared. It wasn't the third time. It would have technically been the fourth time, but it's the third place. And so we have two times in Jerusalem, on the road to Emmaus, and then up north we have, um, at the Sea of Galilee, we have a sighting. 
So there's these times in the Gospel of John where Jesus is appearing after his resurrection. Um, and so when it says Sea of Tiberias, this is the Sea of Galilee. So it's just known, and the Romans called it the Sea of Tiberias. It's the Sea of Galilee. So these men would have been all over this place. This is where most a lot of Jesus' ministry happened. The disciples go back to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus had told them earlier in another gospel that they would, he would appear to them in the Sea of Galilee. And when you read the other gospel accounts, you can piece together when the angels are like, why are you looking here? He said he'd meet you at Galilee. Why don't you go there? That's like kind of a dumb moment. And it's like a, t- a teaching spot to say, just follow what Jesus says. Like, how hard is this? He told you what to do. Just do it. I wish it was that simple. I really do. Um, to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, he revealed himself in this way. So the guys go back fishing. Now, I'd also, I find it really kind of cool, that even though Peter is completely dejected, he feels broken, he feels he's betrayed Jesus, and it all hits him, and he's with these guys, and they're all together. They've traveled to Galilee, so this is several days after the resurrection, several days after he's appeared to them. They know he's alive, they know he's around, so Peter is going to be feeling the weight of this. And we're going to see the grace of Christ in his restoration here in a minute. But don't miss that Peter is still the leader. He's not, he hasn't changed who he is. He may be internally a disaster. He's feeling broken. He's feeling that he betrayed Jesus. He's feeling he's, uh, can you just imagine that? But he's still who he is. And so he tells them, I'm going fishing. Now, I've heard this kind of laid out a couple different ways, that they were going back to their old life that they had kind of just missed the whole idea of Jesus. They're not going to perform in the church. They're not doing what he had called them to do. They're not out making disciples. Kind of as a poke at Peter and the disciples, I don't really see it that way. I think that they don't want to be idle. They're waiting around for the Holy Spirit. They're waiting around for some commands. Jesus told them the helper is going to come. They're waiting around for what's next, and they don't want to just be sitting around the beach. What are we going to do? I mean, what would you do? I mean, today you'd probably break out your phone and play some silly game or watch stream something. But they don't want to be idle. They don't want to sit around. They go back to what they know. They're fishermen. So Peter says, I'm going fishing. It's productive. Maybe they can make a little coin to feed them while they're waiting for Jesus. So he says, I'm going fishing. And the guys say, we'll go with you. How often is that all it takes to get a group of people together? Is someone just to step up and say, hey, I'm going to get breakfast. you want to come? Well, uh, what else are you going to do today? Well, uh, everybody's got to eat. Go get breakfast. And all of a sudden you see relationships form and you see community develop and you see connection. And you know how often if we're in church, you're really going to come up to someone you don't know or someone you do really know and just vomit all of what's happening in your life. Well, you know, this week has been terrible, and I just I can't, and, blah, and then you watch people's eyes glaze over and go, That's, oh, I didn't expect this. I just said, how are you? In a throwaway question. I didn't really want to know how you are. I was just being polite. But how quickly can you over food, over a meal, over a shared time together, say, hey, I, I kind of just, I feel like something's going on. You want to get some food? Want to grab some coffee? And how quickly all the stuff melts. Well, I think that's what they're doing. I'm going fishing. They go, we'll go with you. 
They're all sitting around, like, what's happening? They're probably murmuring and talking. We're going to have, we're going to do this. I thought we were supposed to, I don't know. And Peter just goes, hey, let's go fishing. They're out all night fishing. Night fishing was apparently a great way to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee. It's all net fishing, so you're casting nets out, and you're pulling them in. It's pretty laborious stuff, so Peter and all the men are going to strip down because it's going to be hot. They're working hard. It's manual labor, and they're out there fishing. And they're fishing all night, and they catch nothing, which probably would have been a slight, been a slight poke to these professional fishermen. They're probably thinking, well, I've gotten rusty. I can't do this anymore. I've been hanging around. I've got, there's no more calluses on my hands. I've gotten soft. I can't pull this off. They catch nothing. The Sea of Galilee is huge. Um, I think a lot of times we think of this lake in the middle of Israel as this, well, it's just a lake. We don't, I mean, you need to think more along the lines of Great Lakes type lakes. It's not that big, but like you can't think Lake Hattie. It's, it's a bit bigger. It has its own storm systems, its own weather patterns. It's not Glendo, although I've been on Glendo. It's been pretty windy, but there's a whole different set of weather in this area. And so the Sea of Galilee is huge. Um, we, I had the opportunity to not only go see the Sea of Galilee, but get on a boat on the Sea of Galilee a few years ago. It was amazing. Um, this is the spot where the Sermon on the Mount would have happened from a boat. Um, right now you can see the white. You used to be able to climb on that and get out there, and someone would um, stand on the hill, and you could, you could preach a little bit, and it would project down on the hill. But now it's all blocked off because they're growing, I think it's, I don't know if it's olives or dates or something. It's now been that the spot here on the top is a church that's to commemorate the space of the Sermon on the Mount. And then the hillside where it would have happened is owned by a company now and they're growing crops there. That's pretty cool. So they're known very well. They know it. They, they fish it. They worked it. Jesus called them to be disciples on this place. It's a place of comfort. It's a place of, they go out and they catch nothing. Not only are they bored, confused, what's happening, and now the profession. Like if all this Jesus stuff is done, now I can't even make a living. Trey, stop pinching her. It's mean. Just as day's breaking, Jesus stands on the shore. So we're at sunrise. Just as day's breaking, he stands on the shore, and they don't know it's him. Now we know if we get later in the text, this is 100 yards out. The, the boat's at least 100 yards out. And Jesus says, children, which is a term of endearment, but can you imagine being on your fishing boat, having fished all night, catching nothing, and there's some dude on the beach going, children, do you have any fish? And they answer, no. Now, I think in the great... Um, uh, I'm not sure how much John edited this. But it's, a, it's a small, short no. You can, you can, you can kind of... I mean, if you put your place in the spot, you can feel like, really, dude? I've been out here all day. I'm a professional fisherman. And you're going to ask me if I got any fish? No. They're just frustrated. So then he says, uh, cast it on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. So they cast it. And now they're not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Now, if you have ever been on a fishing boat with other people and you've been casting and casting and casting and then someone comes along and says, you guys are fishing on the wrong side. Just fish on that side. There's going to be eye rolls. 
there's going to be, okay, and then you're going to just out of spite throw it on the other side like, oh, really? See nothing. They're not biting today. There would be, you, it wouldn't be like, oh, great idea. I didn't think to put it on that side. You're going, there's, so this exchange is very, there's some tension, there's some like attitude, you can just feel it. But they do it anyway. But I think they do it as a bit of a fine. Oh, you think you're so smart? And what happens? The disciple whom Jesus loved, oh, I missed it. Says it's the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put out his outer garment, for he was stripped of work. They threw himself in the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but a hundred yards off. So in that moment, they toss the net. They start to pull it up. Fish. They got fish. And John says, it's the Lord. Why would he say that? Because it was a miracle. They've been fishing all night. Nothing. This joker on the beach says, hey, toss it on the other side. They do it, immediately catch fish. The end of verse 6. They not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Somehow I edited that line out. That's a big part. They caught fish. Verse 7. That disciple, it is the Lord. There's no way. All night, he's out there. Here's this guy. He used a term of endearment, called them children. They catch fish. And John says, it's Jesus. When Peter hears that, doesn't doubt it, puts on his outer garment. This does not mean the disciples were fishing naked, um, but they would have stripped down to next to nothing. And he puts on his outer garment, puts on his coat. He's not going to leave his coat out just there. And then he jumps in the water. Now, there's some differentiate. There's people have different opinions on because um, the areas of the Sea of Galilee close to the beach are pretty shallow. It's a hundred yards out. Uh, is what, did he jump in and swim? It seems a bit silly to throw on your outer garment and then get it soaking wet. You would probably just jump in with your undergarment and then have the rest of the guys come in. Or did he pull it on um, and then he waded in like it was thigh deep? That probably makes more sense. But he grabs his coat and he goes. That's the key. He grabs his coat, jumps off the boat. He's going to get to Jesus. He's been waiting. We're waiting for you. We've been here. We're fishing. What are you doing, Jesus? i got to get to you. What's happening? He gets out of the boat and he goes, throws himself into the sea. So the other disciples come in the boat, dragging the net full of fish because they were not far from land and they couldn't get the net over the boat. So many fish they caught, they couldn't get it up over the side of the boat. So they're just dragging this net, rowing the boat to shore, getting the boat to shore to get to follow Peter as well. When they got they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread, and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Bring the fish in. I already got some fish for you. We're getting little pictures of not only communion. We're getting little pictures of loaves and fishes. 
Like these are all little reminder lessons that Jesus is giving them. Come on, eat with me. Break bread with me. Have communion with me. Let's eat. Let's have some food. Where do you get the fish and the bread? Well, it's Jesus. He got it wherever he wanted to. Bring it in. Let's eat. Bring some more of that. Now, there are some theories about the 153 fish. That there's some numerology going on here. That at the time, there were about 153 different species of fish that existed in the known Middle Eastern region. So this is supposed to be, some people would say that this is a way for Jesus to be telling them that you're to be fishers of the entire world. That there are 153 species of fish that you are to take the gospel to the world. I, I like this sentiment, but I think that's a stretch, if I'm just being honest. I, don't, I think this is a mystery of the text that we, why 153? I don't, I don't know. Um, Some people say, well, if you take the 1 and you take the 5 and divide the 5 by 2 and get 2.5 and 3 and then it equals the perfect number. I don't know. That could be very much true. I'm not denying that numerology is in the Bible. I just think sometimes we get into the weeds. The point is the net is full. Out all night, nothing. A word from Jesus, do it over here. A miracle happens. He gives them a miracle. He gives them communion. He gives them a reminder of the loaves and fishes miracle. I think this is a reteaching. Guys, think about everything we did together. None of it was for just happenstance. Don't forget. Don't forget these moments. Now sit down. Let's have some food. Let's be together. He then has an interaction with Peter. He tells them, let's have some breakfast. And none of them dared ask, who are you? Now, that's a weird thing. He's been showing up and kind of clouded. So in this moment, it probably because it's dark, it's still getting close to maybe sunrise, and they're not seeing him clearly. But none of them, like, why would, if they see him, why would they ask? There's something mysterious going on here that I don't quite understand. Um, but they knew it was him. He came and he took the bread, gave it to them, and so the fish, this was now the third time he arrived. But I don't know if this is because it's dark. I don't, I don't know what's happening here. Why would they say, who are you? He saw them in the upper room. He, they saw the hands. They saw the side. They knew it was him. He revealed himself to them. We know he kept himself hidden on the walk to Emmaus until that last moment he revealed himself. Is this? I don't know. Anything that I would try to have an opinion on would be just me thinking on it instead of seeing right from the text. What we can see from the text is in that moment, they knew who he was. They knew who he was. Whoa. I need to shorten that a little. Um, When they finished breakfast, Jesus turns to Simon. Now remember where they're at. They've just finished breakfast. The disciples are around, and he turns to Simon and has this exchange. This is an exchange of restoration and encouragement to Peter. But I also think there's some ribbing amongst the rest of the dudes that are sitting around him. Because if you remember, all the way back in chapter 1, he foretells Jesus says, where, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Will you? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. And then we get into the very long, um, from 14 to, I believe, 18, if I get it right. Four, yeah, 14 to 18, stops the end of 17. Jesus' long teaching that our Sunday school class is going through in the fellowship hall. Um, and so he's dealing with Peter's arrogance. He's dealing with Peter's self-righteous kind of strength. I would never deny you. Well, we know he does deny him. And so now sitting around the campfire, Jesus is going to tell him, you can't have that kind of strength without me. You can't do it. You can't make it through the storms. You can't make it through the battles. You can't say, I'm just going to white-knuckle this. I will never deny you. I will never not serve you. I will always follow the Ten Commandments. I will always be without sin. I will always... You can't do that. And so then Jesus has this exchange with Peter. And remember, the disciples are there. That's why I think there's some, there's some ribbing going on around here. Peter has told them. They all know. Peter's been heartbroken. They all know. So Jesus is publicly reminding Peter with the disciples, I think with some poking, but he's also giving him a restorative moment to say, feed my sheep. Stop worrying about how it's going to end. Stop worrying about how strong you are, how great a servant you are. Your job is to feed the sheep. Shepherd the sheep. Don't worry about your name and lights. Don't worry about being the strong one. Don't worry about being the one on the right hand of the Father. Quit worrying about all of these things the world would have you worry about. Just feed my sheep. So he tells Simon, son of John, do you love me? We're all sitting there. Simon, do you love me more than the rest of the disciples? Awkward. Like, that's like me going to my kids and Amber standing right beside me and go, you guys love me more than Amber, right? I'm your favorite parent. They're not going to choose. If they did, they're jerks. They're not going to choose. Just like that tongue-in-cheek said this last night. It's kind of funny. It's probably fresh in my head. I'm your favorite child, right? And I said, you're my favorite child who's with me right now because Eli was at homecoming dance. So play tongue-in-cheek. Jesus is doing this in front of the disciples. That's why I think there's some, there's some prodding here. Because this would be a jerk move to do in front of all the disciples. So he says to Peter, He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Now, is there some play going in Greek between the versions of love? Yes, there is. You can't deny that. But I think we get into the weeds and we go down that path of saying, Well, this is agape love and phileo love, and this is great. But I think what he's... There were three denials, so Jesus is helping him to see, you've now said you've loved me three times. I get to work. He's helping. Get over it. Get over the guilt. Get over the shame. You've said you love me. And then, he, then when Peter says, you know that I love you, yeah, I know you do. That's the point. 
I want the, all of them to hear. I want all of the ones sitting around here that may have thought, well, Peter denied. I don't know if he's strong enough. I don't know if I want to follow. I don't know. I want all of them to hear you publicly say you love me. I want all of them to also get a little joke at your expense. And I want you to be restored. He doesn't say, do you love me and will you deny me? He says, do you love me? Yes. Then out of your love for me, feed my sheep. That's the mission. It's not to be strong. It's not to be perfect. It's not to have it all figured out. It's not to be the one that would never deny. I would be beheaded before I would deny you. That's not the point. You don't have the strength to do that. That comes from Christ. Feed my sheep. Quit worrying about all this. Get over your guilt and get to work. And as you serve, you'll begin to believe it more and more and more. I don't know if you know this about serving in the church and serving in a ministry or serving your neighbors. If you're waiting around until you have the perfect level of faith and you're the strongest in your faith before you jump into service, you're never going to serve. That is a silly way of thinking about how we grow in our faith. You come to a faith in Christ and you often grow more in the service of the kingdom than waiting for the kingdom to grow so strong in your heart you feel like you got it all figured out. Because you never graduate from serving, you're always going to serve. Always. It'll look different in different phases of life, different areas, different places you're at, but you're always called to serve. And Peter is being reminded of this. You're not going to be the strongest. You need me. Jesus is saying you need the Spirit to give you even the, the gumption to pull it off. But feed my sheep. Take care of the sheep. Shepherd them. Love them. Care for them. And teach the word. That's the call. So he restores him. Has a little fun around the campfire, I would, I would argue. But he's also setting Peter up and he's setting the rest of the disciples up. You don't have to have all this figured out. Feed my sheep. Then we have this very interesting exchange. Truly, truly, I say to you. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Then we have the, this parenthetical addition. This was said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. But Peter didn't die of old age. He died nailed to a cross upside down. So what is going on? And I think the overarching, because the disciples are all here, they're all hearing this, I, I think when we try to direct it just to Peter, we miss it. When he says this overarching to all the disciples, he's telling them, some of you are going to grow old, and some of you are not. Follow me. Some of you may reach the age where someone has to help dress you, but follow me. Follow me. Now what happens people begin to believe because of this exchange with Peter, there's like this, eh, who's it going to be? Who's the one that's going to betray this old age? Or who's not going to share the gospel? Who's not going to die for the faith? And it gets this story starts spreading amongst the people of God that John's going to live forever. Part of that comes from 
the fact that John was martyred and did not die. They tried to boil him alive, and he didn't die. So it starts this idea that, well, man, John's not going to die. He's immortal because he's the one whom Jesus loves. So John is, through the inspiration of the Spirit, but also his own personality, he's going to try to put to rest this idea that he's going to live forever. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him, the one who asked, one who would also lean back against him during the supper, bring us all the way back to the beginning. Lord, who is this going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread among, abroad among the brothers that this disciple is not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? So people have taken this text and stretched all the way out this because we haven't seen the second coming of Christ, John's still alive. And then John's trying to correct this rumor and these passages, these words saying, no, we all get the amount of time on this planet that God is going to give us. And until we die or he comes back, we follow him. We follow him. We follow him in service. We follow him in gratitude. We follow him in his care, his shepherding. We follow him. He's everything. We follow him. This is the disciple. So this is his closing salutation. This is kind of the closing part of the letter. This is John, like how Paul would say, this is my pedigree. Paul would say, you know, I'm a, a Jew. I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. So Paul would set up his pedigree for certain audiences. So in the end, John says who he is. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, challenge me. This can all be verified. Go talk to people. This is written. I mean, so John is a young man. He's still alive. We know he lived to be older. He was around. We know he later on wrote the book of Revelation. We know he wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He lived quite a while. He's saying, come ask me. You don't believe me? Here's some people to go talk to. This isn't just written in a cave somewhere, making stuff up. It's not the pre-Harry Potter. It's not fantasy. This is real. Come talk to me. Now, for every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. There's more to this story. There's more. And we will learn it in heaven. We're not going to learn it here. That's going to be pretty fun, too. Now think about how many stories of Christ changing lives have existed since this was written. We've got 2,000 years of the story of Christ changing lives. I, I hope you like good campfire tales. Because I think in the new earth there's going to be a lot of them. There's going to be a lot of, hey, wow, I haven't seen you since high school. How'd you get here? It was probably people saying that to me. <laughs> you? How did you get here? There's going to be this consistent story of giving Christ the glory for why we're together in the new earth. That's going to take an eternity. We're going to always be telling the story. And you've heard half of my story six times already. So just imagine an eternity of billions of people in the new earth all telling the same story, and you're not going to get tired of it. It's all going to be the story of Christ redeeming his creation and making us whole. That would fill all the books of the world, and more so. That's kind of cool to think about.
Like right now, we're so inundated with news and despair and, oh my gosh, what's blowing up next? And where's the economy going? And, oh my gosh. And then all that's going to go away and all we're going to have is the stories of Christ, the stories of faith and hope and strength. I'm ready to read those newspapers. I'm kind of tired of the ones I'm reading now. So to close, our comfort is not in our own morality, but in the mercy of Christ. I think central wedged into this fishing story and then some conjecture and trying to correct. We have this beautiful story of Peter, a firebrand of faith, a man that was willing, like just think of him. One of the sons of thunder, bold, brash, going after it, um, cutting ears off, defending Jesus. I'm the strong, like he inside, like I'm the one. I can lift the most, I can run the fastest, I can fight the most, I can, I'm going to, whatever he says, I can, I'm going to do it, I'm going to just confident. Then he was broken in fear, in despair. And Jesus had to restore him. And he restored him in a loving, joking, in front of the disciples, around them way. And he was trying to get across to him, Peter, you can't do this on your own. You can't. You can memorize the scriptures. You can make sure you're not seeing anything that's an affront. You can run from sin, you can follow all the commandments, you can live this perfect moral life. And when you slip, it will crush you. It will crush you. Because the entire time you've been trying to keep this all held together in the power of your sheer will, and that's impossible. Instead, we have to live in the mercy of Christ. Now, we can't let the pendulum swing the complete opposite way. See, I'm going to do whatever I want and just go, I know you forgive me, Lord. That's not a way of honoring him. It's not a way of, re- of stepping into the kingdom. It's, that's not what we're going. We can't let the pendulum swing the other way. But we have to live in the knowledge that we are not perfect. We will fail. We try our hardest. We will mess up. And his mercies are new each day. He will forgive us at every turn. And because of that kind of love, that kind of mercy, we will step into all those dark places. We will have the power to survive the storm. We will have the energy to reach out and grab others and bring them with us as we walk with Christ. Yes, stay in the word. Stay in prayer. Fight hard against the sins that we all struggle with. But you cannot do it. You don't have the capacity. Jesus does. And we stay connected to him. And he gives us the strength and the power and the humor to make it through it all. You can't white-knuckle the fighting of your sin. can't. Peter is the guy that was going to fight it with his own heart and his own muscle and his own He's going to fight it. And Jesus tells him around a campfire, feed my sheep. Stop trying to be so perfect. You're not going to get there. Yes, grow, but stop striving for perfection. 
serve. Feed my sheep. And as you serve, you grow. As you serve, you come to feel the presence of Christ more and more and more. That gave him the strength to go to the cross upside down. Gave him the strength to be corrected later, even by Paul, as he's leading the church in Jerusalem. He messes up. Paul comes in and corrects him. Ah, what have I done? In that moment, he would have been crushed again. I forgot. What am I doing? And instead, he's restored. He had a pattern of seeing the grace and the mercy of God over and over and over again. And that was the energy that helped him to serve God. Do you feel that mercy? Do you feel that power of God's forgiveness each and every day? Do you understand the world was made broken? And God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit made a plan for the world to be restored. It was through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. We live in the church age where we get to be like Peter, doling out mercy and hope to all who are around us because we were first given that by Christ himself. Someday he's going to come back. Or he's going to call us home in death before he comes back. We will win the prize of his presence. We will be finally restored. But that's only because of his mercy, not because of your effort. Do you walk in that mercy every day? I pray you do. If you don't, then we need to talk. And I can help you to see that that's the truth of the Bible. We walk in his mercy, not in our effort. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for time we have together in your word. I am um, so thankful that I can open up this love letter that you've written to us all, and I can see how you've interacted with someone like Peter, a hero of the faith, a man who passionately followed you, who slipped up but was restored, went on to be an anchor of the church, but he was not perfect. And that gives me great hope that my effort is not what you desire or require of me. It's my humble submission. It's my service. And it's me trusting your promise of helping me to grow closer to you every step along the way. I pray that everyone in this room feels that kind of grace and mercy. They don't carry around guilt and shame that's been paid for on the cross. Instead, when they do enter into places of temptation and sin, they would cry out to you, Lord, to help us to fight them back. They would feel the warm embrace of your love as you help us to fight them. I pray, Lord, that we all have an abiding relationship with you, and we want to grow closer to you each and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.